Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would please speak to us. Lord, prepare our hearts. Hide me behind your cross. Bring this message together, Lord, as only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Bible tells us in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it is addressing the Laodicean church. Who is the Laodicean church? We are. And the Bible says there, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Do you think God loves you? Yes. And uh, because God loves you, because God loves us as a church, the Bible tells us that he rebukes and he chastens. God loves us. He wants to see his people redeemed. He wants to see his people saved. Amen? Amen. And so when God speaks to us, uh, his desire is to penetrate our hearts. The Bible tells us that the church thinks that it is rich and increased with goods with need of how much? Nothing. While not knowing that it is miserable, naked, wretched, and blind. And so tonight, um, I want to share with you what I believe God is seeing in his Laodicean church. And what we need to do to be ready for Jesus to come again. Amen? Amen. So, um... Allow it to burn. Did you, get, did you catch that just now? <laughs> Allow the spirit to convict. Amen? Why? Because this is not God condemning. This is not God trying to make us feel bad. But this is God saying, listen, you need to search your heart. Because the Bible says the heart is desperately or deceitfully what? Wicked and who can know it? So this is God calling us to search our hearts. And by the way, let me tell you something. God is merciful. God is merciful. He invites us to repent. He invites us to come to him. He doesn't just call us out and then leave it at that. He has mercy upon us in ways that are just mind-blowing. How many of you remember the story of David who did some pretty messed up things? Did David do some pretty messed up things? He did some pretty... Some pretty seriously messed up stuff. And you know what? God gave David an opportunity to repent. Didn't he? You know, he slept with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and then had Uriah killed. That's pretty messed up. Would you agree? And the Bible tells us that the prophet Nathan comes to him and gives him this whole story about, you know, a man who had only one little sheep and another man who had everything. And the man who had everything took the one man's little sheep. And David was so angry. And, you know, Nathan asked, what should be done to that man? And David said, that man should be killed. That man should be punished. And then Nathan says to him, you are the man. You are the man. You are the man. You know what David does? What does he do? What does he do? Does he say, no, that's not me. You got the wrong person. Mistaken identity. No. He repents. He repents. In fact, I want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I'm just showing you this very quickly to show you how amazing God is. 2 Samuel 
chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also has put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Praise God. David repented, and God says to him, You shall not die. Praise God. Praise God. Amen? Amen. That next verse is kind of messed up, though. I don't know if you read that next verse. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. There are consequences to our sins. There are consequences to our actions. David is spared, but this child dies. That's pretty messed up, wouldn't you say? You almost think God is at Is that fair? We're not told who this child is. All we know is that it's a boy. The child has no name. So all we know about this story. (laughs) Is that the son of David. Having done no wrong. (laughs) Suffers on behalf of the guilty. That the guilty might live. (laughs) Beloved, this is why Jesus invites us to repent. He is the son of David. He is the one that died on behalf of us that we might repent, that we might come and have a chance of eternal life. And so he invites us. Repent. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. I'm not trying to destroy you. I want you to know that I want you to be saved. I died for you, being innocent. You being guilty, I died that you might have eternal life. So with that in mind, I've set the foundation for us to realize that God is not out to try to destroy us. Amen? So when he points out to us as a church, listen, this is what is bringing in division. This is what is bringing in an inability for you to complete the work that I gave you to do over 170-something years ago. If you repent and put away your ways, we'll be able to wrap this up and go home. So, the Bible tells us in Matthew 24, you don't need to turn there right now, just Matthew 24, verse 12 and 13, if you're interested in the text, the Bible says, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will wax So what is the Bible telling us? That as time goes on, hatred in the hearts of men is going to increase. Men are going to become more hateful. There's going to be more anger. Let me ask you a question. As you look at society today, do you see this verse being fulfilled? 
Let me ask you another question. As you look at not society today, but in our church today, do you see, do you sense a spirit of division, a spirit of anger, yea, might I even say a spirit of hatred that seems to be permeating the people of God? You see, beloved, Satan is trying to infect God's church with hate. And he's doing it in a very insinuous way. The love of many will wax cold. That's what we're told. But he that endures unto the end shall be saved. Endures in what? Endures in love. Those who stockpile love. Those are the ones that are going to make it through the end of time. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the things that happened to Israel happened as an example unto us upon whom the ends of the world are come. And the history of Israel is what fills the entire Old Testament. So we're going to do something tonight that at first you're going to be like, oh, what? But we're going to do this very quickly. Now I like to do things quickly. You're about to take a crash course on the seven churches of the book of Revelation. This is a super-duper crash course. This is going to be super-juiced because this is only setting the foundation for the message. Are you with me? All right, so how many churches in the book of Revelation? Seven churches, all right? So far, so good. Let me see if you can tell me the names of those churches in order. You can look in your Bible if you want to, but if you, if you can yell it out for me, just go ahead. So church number one is? Ephesus. Church number two? Smyrna. Church number three? Pergamos. Church number four? Thyatira. Church number five? Sardis. Church number six? Philadelphia, and church number seven, Laodicea. What time period are we in right now? Laodicea. Now, here's a question. Why? Well, let me explain. In the Bible, the numbers one through seven represent a complete cycle of time. What, everyone? Complete cycle of time. So you look at the creation week, one through seven was, were the numbers used to represent a complete cycle of time, the creation week. So when we see the numbers one through seven in the book of Revelation, they are telling us of events that happen over a period of time. All we need to do to understand when that period of time begins and when it ends is to find its bookends. Does that make sense? So the seven churches begins with a vision of John seeing Jesus standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, and he describes himself as the one who was dead and now is alive. So what we know then is that the seven churches begin shortly after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. The seventh church is the church of the judgment, the Laodicean church, the end-time church before Jesus comes again, which lets us know that the seven churches covers a period of time from the resurrection of Christ all the way down to the second coming. If you're with me so far, just say amen. amen. Very good. So now all we need to do is figure out what these time periods represent. All right? So the first church is the church of Ephesus. And that was the church, and I'm giving this to you in a nutshell form, that was a church that started out strong. 
but then they ended up losing their first love. Okay, this is the early church period. Don't zone out on me, okay? Because you're going to need this in just a few minutes. You're going to be like, oh, wow. So don't zone out on me. Church number one, Ephesus, the church that began pure, began zealous, but then they ended up losing their first love. They fell from their first love. Church number two is the church of Smyrna. And in that church, we were told that they would be thrown in prison for 10 days. They would be persecuted. And so it is symbolic of the persecuted church, which would basically represent the Roman persecution era where the early church was now being persecuted by Rome, Nero, etc. Right. So first church period, time of Christ, up to about, oh, say, 100 AD. And then the second church period is the Roman persecution. So about 100 AD onward up to about 300 AD, where we are introduced to the third church, which is Pergamos. Now, who knows what this third church period represents? What time frame, roughly? What's happening in this third church period? By the way, the word Pergamos means exaltation through marriage exaltation through marriage. What is marriage? It's a union, yeah? Was there a union of the church sometime in the 300 ADs that exalted them to a position that they did not have before? Yes, and we think of a man by the name of Constantine, right? Constantine was an emperor, and here's what happened. The church of that time period rejected Jesus Christ as their ruler in the place of Constantine to guide them and protect them. Compromise. Church state. Which leads us to the fourth church, which is the church of Thyatira, in which there is a woman described by the name of Jezebel. What are we talking about here? Who is Jezebel? Okay, this persecuting power, what time period would this represent? Right? The Dark Ages. How many of you are following so far? Okay, so far so good? All right, Dark Ages. Very good, all right? The fifth church is the church of Sardis, and the word Sardis means those escaping. Those escaping, I want to ask you a question. Is there a church period representing someone escaping out of or coming from or... Let me say it this way. They, okay. <laughs> You're like, we got it, Pastor. We got it. Good, good. The Reformation, right? This is the Protestant Reformation. They began the Reformation but did not complete the Reformation. Who completes the Reformation? What church? Philadelphia. Can someone tell me what the Philadelphia church, who is the church that comes upon the scene that completes what the Protestant Reformation started? The Seventh-day Adventist church. The church of brotherly love, where people came from all different denominations to work together to accomplish or to finish the Reformation. And then the final church, Laodicea. Are you with me so far? Laodicea. And what are we doing now? That this is the church that is waiting for the coming of Jesus. All right. These things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Is that true? I have a question for you. Did Adam and Eve start out perfect? Did they lose their first love? 
Interesting. Book of Genesis, the people of God start out on fire for God. But then they lose their first love. Book of Genesis. Kind of parallels the church of Ephesus. What's the next church? Smyrna, the persecuted church. Can anyone tell me what the book of Exodus is about? Do you have a persecuted church in the book of Exodus? Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. And so they are persecuted, but you know the story that this is about from Exodus, and then we have Deuteronomy, Numbers. We have those books that speak about Israel and God leading them out of persecution. Then we get to the book of Joshua and Judges. And in Joshua and Judges, the children of Israel who were before persecuted now enter into the promised land. Yeah? And then something really sad happens there. Because once they get there, they have a priest, a judge by the name of Samuel. But the people begin to say, once they are in this position of exaltation, they begin to say, hey, you know what? We don't want a priest ruling over us. We want a king. Y'all not feeling me. And so they asked for a man by the name of Saul. That sounds to me just like the history of the Pergamos church. Who said, we reject Christ as our ruler. We want a man ruling over us. Very interesting. As a result of this, Israel begins to really, really mess up. They mess up so much so that by the book of 2 Chronicles, they have now gone into captivity by a power named Babylon. Wow, that's very interesting because the fourth church, Thyatira, describes the people of God under a persecuting power by the name of Babylon. Do you see what's going on here? It's almost like the churches of the New Testament parallel the history of God's people in the Old Testament. But wait, there's more. (laughs) So after the children of Israel are in captivity, you know that a man comes up on the scene by the name of Ezra. And he begins a work of reformation. What church? What church? Sardis. But remember, Sardis did not complete the Reformation. Philadelphia did. Let me ask you, did Ezra begin the work of Reformation? Yet, but did he complete it? No, no, no. Someone else came along. Nehemiah. And Nehemiah completed the work that Ezra began. Nehemiah's work... His work was to repair the breach. Let me just step down here. (laughs) Nehemiah was to be a repairer of the breach. What does God call his people at the end of time to do? Repair the breach. And so after Nehemiah does this, now Israel is simply in a state of waiting. Okay, everything is done. We're just waiting. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. (laughs) We are waiting for the coming of Jesus. 
However, when Jesus gets there, guess what condition Israel is in? (laughs) All right. You see where this is going? (laughs) Are you following me? Israel was in a, uh, what word would you give me? Um, Laodicean. That's a good word. They were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. The things that were written in the past were written for our admonitions upon whom the ends of the world are come. In other words, beloved, the very same condition that literal Israel was in when Jesus came the first time reflects the condition, the risk that we face being in when Jesus comes the second time. So, Let me ask you, was Israel spewed out of the mouth of God? <laughs> was literal Israel cut off yes. as a result of their lukewarmness? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So what we need to figure out is, okay, okay, we've got a case study before us. What was the condition of Israel? What was Israel's problem that caused them to be unprepared for the coming of Jesus? Because we don't want to make that same mistake. We don't want to end up in that same boat. And beloved, I have good news for you. According to the prophecy, we'll be ready when Jesus comes again. Let me rephrase that. According to the prophecy, some of us will be ready when Jesus comes again. (laughs) Is that okay? (laughs) Because it's the truth. So some of us will avoid the mistakes that Israel made, and some of us will actually make the same mistakes. So now we need to know what is the mistake that they made, and I'm going to suggest to you that there were two mistakes that they made. We're going to look at number one first. So Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. The Bible says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord. Jesus Christ is being described in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1, but he is called an angel. It's very interesting. Why is he called an angel? Is it because he's a created being? No, he's a what? He's a messenger. He's a messenger. So Christ would come as an angel. But he would come as something else as well. Turn with me to the book of Psalm 69. Psalm 69 and verse 7. Psalm 69 and verse 7. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame has covered my face. Is this talking about Jesus? Yeah, it's talking about Jesus. This is a psalm that is a messianic psalm. I want you to notice the next verse. I am become a what? Stranger Stranger unto my brethren and what? Alien unto my mother's children. So Jesus would come as a stranger. Now, I don't know what this word stranger means. 
I'm going to just give you another word for it. The word stranger signifies... I'm going to say that again. (laughs) The word stranger signifies... Foreigner. Jesus was going to come not only as an angel, as a messenger, but he was also going to come as a foreigner. Huh. That's interesting. Why would he come as a foreigner? Why would he come as a stranger? You know, John 1, 10 tells us he came unto his own and his own what? Received him not. Why didn't they receive him? They didn't recognize him. He was a stranger. He was a stranger. He was a foreigner. What was everyone? Foreigner. So how would Israel treat the foreigner? Let me try seeing it on this side of the podium. (laughs) How would Israel treat this stranger when he came? Does the Bible tell us be careful to entertain strangers because some have entertained angels? Yeah, you don't know, unawares. You don't know. So the Bible says entertain strangers. Listen, remember when Joseph was the second in command in Egypt and his brothers came unto him? But the Bible says that he made himself strange unto them. They didn't know who he was. He was a stranger. They did not recognize the one whom they had sold into captivity and who was now exalted to a position second in command. They didn't recognize him. He was to them a stranger, much like when Jesus drew near to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're walking with him, and they're telling him why they're sad, but the Bible says they did not know him. They said, art thou only a stranger in Israel? Christ was the divine stranger. He came as a foreigner. In fact, in Philippians 2.5, it says he took upon himself the form of a servant. That word servant is the Greek doulos. It means slave. So hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Christ came as a foreigner and as a slave. Okay. <laughs> How? Yeah, yeah. Someone's thinking with me. Someone is thinking with me. How, how would Israel, remember, we're talking about the things that happened in their time. Here's a foreigner, not one of us. Not one of us, a foreigner, a slave. Jesus hides himself under the flesh of the foreigner. Takes upon himself the form of a servant, a slave. Says, okay, let's see how you treat me. Because we all know that if Jesus came in glory, everyone in Israel would praise him, praise him, Jesus, our blessed be. 
We all know that. So Jesus could not come as himself because we all know how to put on performances. We know how to cry when we sing. We know how to feel the warm fuzzies when it's time to feel the warm fuzzies. We, so Jesus says, I'm going to come as a stranger. I'm going to come as a foreigner. I'm going to come as the slave. Why? Because I want to see who you really are. Who are you really? I know what you say. Laodicea. I mean, Israel. <laughs> I know what you say. I know you know the right words. But come on. I want to know what's really in your heart. What's really going on inside? So, Jesus comes as a foreigner, as a slave, as a captive, much like Daniel. Is there any sin in the Bible recorded of Daniel? No, but you know what? He was taken captive with his people. Isn't that interesting? Daniel was taken as a slave with his people. He identified with his people, even though the Bible records that he did no wrong. So Jesus comes as one of, he dons on the armor or the clothing of a, of a foreigner and he comes. And now the question is, why would he come as such? The answer is because the coming of Jesus was to reveal the thoughts of many hearts. That's what the angel told Mary. The one who is born of you is going to reveal the thoughts and the intents of many hearts. So he comes disguised as a stranger, disguised as a slave. Check this out. Come back with me to the very beginning. God creates man. In the book of Genesis. And we know that at some point, God would use the human race to judge Satan and his angels. Know ye not that we shall judge angels. How do you think Lucifer, Satan, felt about that? Was he happy? No. He's thinking that the human race is going to take his place. The human race is going to push him out. The human race is going to ultimately judge him and condemn him. So as a result, Satan hates the human race. He hates the human race. He hates the human... You might, you might be wondering why I can, He hates the human race. And when you hate a race, that makes you racist. <laughs> so Satan was the first racist. Are, are y'all feeling me? Satan, beloved, was a racist. We don't like the human race. So we want to oppress them and make them slaves and do everything we possibly can to break them and to destroy them. And we want to put our own spirit of racism into the human race. Make them just like us. So, 
Satan gets to work. We look at the story of the Exodus, of Egypt. Why does Egypt enslave Israel? They were what? They were racist. (laughs) They were against the race of Israel. They were against the people of Israel. And they actually said, come to, let us... Let us enslave them, lest they become greater than us in number. And some war break out and they, raid, they rise up against us. So remember what we talked about last night? Fear? Fear. They were afraid of these foreigners. They're going to take our jobs. I mean, they're going to... No, no, not jobs. They're going to take our, our land. <laughs> I said, I meant land. They're going to take our land. Get some water. <laughs> this is a hard message, guys. And listen, listen, please listen, okay? If it burns, let it burn. <laughs> if it doesn't burn, praise God. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right? So don't anybody like me. In fact, you know, count of three. Um, we love you, Pastor Myers. One, two, three. That didn't sound convincing (laughs) at all, man, at all, at all. (laughs) So their argument was, they're going to take our stuff. They're going to rise over us, and they're going to, you know, take everything that belongs to us and push us out of this land, and it won't be ours anymore. Uh, Egypt had a problem with racism, and they had a problem with nationalism. Egypt is the greatest nation on the planet. There is none like you. I mean, there is none like us. (laughs) None like us. This was their problem. And so they oppressed the people of God. Pharaoh had a satanic spirit. It was a spirit of superiority. And so, here's what God does. He sends a man by the name of Moses with the gospel. You see, beloved, listen carefully. The gospel, the gospel addressed the oppression of God's people. The gospel was not this thing that was out there, hey, just go tell them to be good, love one another, and just endure their slavery. And No, no, no. The gospel delivered them from oppression. God literally says to Moses, I have heard the cry. You know what that tells me? If I want to be like Jesus... If I want to be like my heavenly father, then I too should hear the cry. If I'm not hearing the cry of the oppressed, if I'm not hearing the cry of the oppressed, something is wrong with my hearing. I'm not hearing the gospel. Whatever it is I'm hearing, whatever it is I'm doing, it is not the gospel because the gospel is designed to deliver oppressed people. 
And if I look down on oppressed people, I've got an issue myself. Are you guys feeling me? You understanding what I'm saying? So God sends Moses and he delivers Egypt out of captivity. He heard their cry. Listen to me. What are we? We are Seventh-day Adventists. Amen. What is one of the chapters, one of the most Seventh-day Adventist-ish chapters? I just made that up, yes. In the Bible. Come on, give me an Adventist chapter. Exodus 20. Okay, very good. Give me the other, well, (laughs) there's one more. I know where you're going next. Give me the other Adventist chapter. Okay, Revelation 14. Now, give me the other Revelation chapter. Okay, Daniel 8. That's another Adventist. All right, now, now, now. There's only no more Daniel, no more Revelation. No more, you've used up all the, the, the books. <laughs> Give me the other. Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bands of wickedness, to let the oppressed, Beloved, listen to me. If our gospel, if our ministry, if our mission is not to deal with those in our society who are being oppressed, we are not doing what God has called us to do. We can preach all day long and do evangelistic series all day long if we are not out on with boots on the ground ministering to the oppressed. We are not doing what God has called us to do. And therefore, he says, that's why you call out to me. And I don't, you ask, how, why do we fast and you do not hear? Why? Because you're not keeping the Sabbath. <laughs> Is this the fast I've called? No. It, haven't I called you to lose the bands of wickedness? To not hide thyself from thine own flesh? You know what that means? Don't turn your head the other way. Be empathetic. Remember how Jesus came and the Bible says that we hid, as it were, our faces from him? We turned our heads the other way in scorn? Like, yeah, you know, he doesn't even matter. How many of us turn our heads in scorn to the oppressed? Ten plagues are poured out. upon Egypt to solve their racist problems. (laughs) You didn't catch that? (laughs) Stop enslaving my people. No. Stop enslaving my people. No. Okay. We're going to pour our plagues on you. The plagues are poured out upon a racist nation. I love you. (laughs) Does God hate those who are racist? No. How do we know that? Well, listen. In the story, the Exodus, guess who left Egypt? 
it was a mixed multitude. Yeah, 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 check this out. Egyptians left with the Israelites. Yeah, Egyptians got converted. <laughs> They're like, we're out of here, man, enough. No, no, we're going. And God, guess what? God received them. The intention was not, oh, God is not racist. God is not racist. So he says, hey, whosoever will, let them come. And so guess what? It was a mixed multitude that left Egypt. Now, watch this. Come on, think about this now. Think about this, right? We're Israel, okay? We are all Israel. And the Egyptians have been just totally doing all kinds of stuff to us as a people that we're just like, man, what are we going to do about this? And now God has come to deliver us, and some of the Egyptians are leaving with us, and now we're the majority, and they're the minority. Exodus 23. Turn there with me. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, verse 9. When you get there, say amen. Amen. Exodus 23, verse 9. Also, Israel, thou shalt not oppress a stranger. For you know the heart of a stranger, seeing you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Do not do unto them what they did unto you. Otherwise, you have become just like what you hate. Beloved, listen to me. Racism is a human problem. Did you catch that just now? Racism is a human problem. You see, in America, when we hear racism, we think that the only racism in the world is like, you know, a black, white, Mexican. <laughs> right? That's it. Every other, nobody else has racist pro- No, no, no. But guess what? Racism is everywhere. You find it in every culture. So while we think of it in the context of where we are in America today, remember that there's racism going on around the world. Why? Because racism is a sin issue. Why? Because Satan was the first racist. And all he's trying to do is to put that spirit of hate. Because in Nukati shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. That's what he's trying to do. So God tells Israel, don't do as they have done unto you. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 tells us the same thing. Remember that you were a stranger in Egypt, so do not treat the stranger in any way that will disappoint me. Do not treat the stranger as you were treated in Egypt. However, the spirit of racism began to penetrate Israel. Because if you read in the Bible over and over, you see God again telling Israel, why are you oppressing the stranger? You see, why was God so concerned about how Israel treated the stranger? Why? Why? Think about it. Because when Jesus came, he was coming. God was trying to set them up. All right, guys, treat the stranger because no one knew who Jesus was coming as. No one knew who Jesus would be. Everyone was, is this the promised child? Is this the promise? So, hey, listen, man, treat the stranger well. 
God was trying to prepare Israel. So now when Jesus comes. But listen, when Jesus came, like when the Pharisees got mad at Jesus, you know, we have our derogatory terms. Think about the racist derogatory terms. For the Jews, it was, Jesus, you Samaritan. <laughs> that was racism. <laughs> was it not? That was race. The Jews have become racist. Any other nation that came, hey, yo, don't touch any other nation. Why? Because they are the Gentiles. Beloved, check this out. You don't, when Jesus came to break down the walls, he was dealing with the issue of racism. Breaking down the walls of separation so that there is neither Jew nor Greek. So, what happens? They have the spirit of racism. Not only do they have the spirit of racism, but you remember when things were getting to a heated pitch with Jesus and they said, listen, it is expedient for us that one man perish, that the nation perish not. Nationalism. Jerusalem, the great. (laughs) The way they treated the stranger... And nationalism. That's what set Israel up. To fail. They had put the nation of the world. Over the kingdom of heaven. And they did not care about the stranger. The oppressed. And when Jesus comes, they're not ready for him. You ready for this? I don't know if you're ready for this. (laughs) You're going to have to be ready for this. (laughs) Remember Peter? Peter? So on the day of Pentecost, you know how Peter had like denied Jesus three times, and then he goes out, he weeps, and then we're told that he's converted, right? Yeah, and he's now giving this life fully to the Lord. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on Peter. And Peter gets up and preaches a powerful message. 3,000 Jews converted in one day. 3,000. That's power. How many of you want to be like Peter? Amen. And then in Acts chapter 10, Peter's on the rooftop. (laughs) And he has this vision. The unclean animals, three times. And then he doesn't know what it means. Rise, kill, and he doesn't know what it means. And then three Gentiles come to greet him. And a spirit says to him, go with them, doubting nothing. Now, what would Peter be doubting? They're Gentiles. So Peter was a? Pastor, hold on, hold on. No, 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 Pastor. On the day of Pentecost, Peter had the Holy Spirit poured out upon him. What do you mean? Yes, that Peter did not know. The heart is deceitfully wicked. 
So Peter goes and he finds Cornelius and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And Peter's like, oh, I get it now. What God has cleansed, that call thou not common. God has shown me not to call any man common or unclean. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Peter gets it now. Say praise the Lord with me. Praise the Lord. Except. (laughs) If you read Galatians chapter 2. Paul said that he had to rebuke Peter to his face. Why? Because when they were eating and the Gentiles, he was eating with the Gentiles, and Jews came in, guess what? Peter tried to say, oh, no, I'm not with them. Guess what was still in his heart? Beloved, let me say something to you. And, you know, I love you. I do. In the Adventist church, we can talk about any other sin. Yeah, there's hatred in the church. Yeah, there's this in the church. Yeah, there's adultery in the church. Yeah, but when we talk about racism in the church, how dare you? Racism? No! My best friend is Mexican. I mean, my coworker is Mexican. Not my best friend, my coworker. My neighbor's black. <laughs> I got a white friend. We tend to want to cover. Did you catch what I'm saying? Beloved, listen to me. We cannot get into heaven with racism in our hearts. So God is doing everything he can to show us the same mistake that the Jews made in the time of Christ, that we don't make that same mistake, those same mistakes. The gospel is about breaking down barriers. When I became an Adventist, this is a little bit of my testimony. When I was brought up, the Bible was the white man's book to me. That was, that's what hip-hop told me. The Bible, the white man book, the white man book, man. Oh, don't read the Bible. So, you know, I was like, yeah, the white man's book. And, you know, I, I was just like, okay, yeah, what? And, and then I would listen to all these other religions like, you know, Nation of Islam and all these other Afrocentric uh, Hebrew Israelites and how the white man was created by an evil scientist named Yaqub. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd be like, <laughs> all right, man, come on. <laughs> You're going a little bit too far now, right? I was like, that sounds stupid. So for me, religion was just really kind of all stupid because none of it made sense to me until I was introduced to Adventism. And I was like, this makes sense. And so, interestingly enough, I was baptized in Brooklyn, New York, and it was an all-black church. So I just thought that Adventism was a black movement. (laughs) 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 You know. So... When I met my first white Adventist, I was like, what? Look at that. 
I was like, you know this movement is powerful when a white man joins a black movement. <laughs> what? And I think the white guy must have been looking at me like, what's the matter with you? <laughs> but I was happy. I was like, look at that. Look, the gospel gets rid of the color line. When the gospel is truly planted in the heart, color is no longer an issue. And we cannot go into every nation, kindred, tongue, and people with genuine love if we don't have genuine love for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And we cannot demonstrate love for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people if we have separation in the Adventist. How, what? How are we going to go forward with a message for every nation, kindred, tongue, and people when on Sabbath morning we're dealing with segregation in the Adventist church? Tell me how that works. You see, while the three angels' messages are supposed to be going forward, Satan is doing his work. And let me tell you the work he's doing because you need to know this. You see, in the book of Revelation, there are two beasts described. One that rises up out of the sea and one that rises up out of the where? Out of the earth. The one that rises up out of the earth is described in these words. This beast had the horns of a lamb, but it spake as a dragon. What nation does that represent? And it specifically represents the Christian element of America. Horns of a lamb, but speaking like a dragon. Now, how many of you believe that one day this beast will in fact speak like a dragon? Let me see your hands. One day this beast will speak like a dragon. I need to see your hands. Hold it up nice and high. I believe that. Okay, guess what? You're all wrong. You're all wrong. The Bible does not say that this beast will speak like a dragon. The Bible said this beak spake as a dragon. Which means from its very inception, y'all not feeling me. From its very inception, it has been a lamb-like beast looking Christian but speaking like a dragon. Now, would you like to know how our pioneers described it this way? Why they described it this way? I want you to listen. This is Uriah Smith. Listen to this. Next, this is from June 10, Adventist Review, 1858. This is what Uriah Smith says. Next, he sees a beast with two horns like a lamb, but he spake as a dragon. This, we believe, means the United States. The government is lamb-like in appearance, but dragon-like in action. In profession, it is the land of liberty, but in action, it is the land of slavery and oppression. (laughs) Let me read it again. In profession, it is the land of liberty, but in action, it is the land of slavery and oppression. That's our pioneers. Jay and Andrews. 
Let me read what he says. Jane Andrews, no power previous to this two-horned beast has been in prophecy symbolized by lamb-like horns. They must symbolize a power in its embryo state with mild form of government, probably the mildest that ever existed. Mark the language of the Declaration of Independence of these United States. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created free and equal, that they are endowed with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Wherever appeared a government with a declaration so lamb-like. In a place where the people are pledged to carry out such a declaration, we should expect to find a godlike class carrying out the principles of the Bible to which it is so nearly allied, love thy neighbor as thyself. Here is a government placing men as persons on equal footing, lamb-like in appearance, yea, Christ-like. Jesus is called the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the, of the world. But as presented by the revelator, the scene is sadly degenerate when the beast begins to act. Instead of carrying out lamb-like professions, he speaks as a dragon. Yes, that very national executive body who have before them this declaration of independence and profess to be carrying out its principles can pass laws by which three million 500,000 slaves can be held in bondage. Slaves, what are they? Men like ourselves, except perhaps in their complexion. The Declaration of Independence should have a clause supplied and should read, all men are created equal and free except 3,500,000. Our pioneers, listen carefully, our pioneers identified the lamb-like beast as America primarily because of racism. Let me tell you something else they said. They said, don't expect the beast to reform. <laughs> the spirit of racism will be in this beast until it is cast into the fire. That's what Uriah Smith said. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Very simple. Just as every other sin gets worse and worse till the end of time, same with racism. While it appears to have, you know, oh, we have gotten away, you know, we've done away with this and done away with that, guess what? The spirit of racism is still alive. It is still alive. And please, listen to me. The spirit of racism can live in anybody. The spirit of racism can live in any heart regardless of your color. Many of us are taking on the spirit of the lamb-like beast. We look like lambs. But when we open our mouths behind closed doors, <laughs> we're speaking like the dragon. We are being conformed to the image of the beast. Yeah, God calls us to fight against this. God calls us to hear the cry of the oppressed. God calls us to be empathetic. God calls us to sympathize with those, not with our own, with those who know not of our faith, who are struggling because they are being oppressed, because they are being, you fill in the blank, 
as God's people, we are supposed to be there for those people. We are supposed to be there for the foreigner. We are supposed to be there for the stranger. Our pioneers were abolitionists. Did you know that? They combined the preaching of the three angels' messages with the current social injustice of the day. They did not deal with with social injustice the way others dealt with it. They dealt with it by preaching the three angels' messages and connecting it as the answer to the social issue of the day. Beloved, when we separate the preaching of the three angels' message from the social issue of the day, racism, crime, poverty, we are doing an injustice to the gospel. The gospel becomes powerless when it cannot answer the issues of people who are living real lives, living in real poverty. We must find a way to take the unadulterated three angels' messages and make it address the social injustices of the day. That's what Isaiah 58 calls us to do. And when we begin to do that, let me tell you, doors are going to open. Because instead of marching alongside people who are trying to throw bottles and we're throwing bottles with them, we can say, hey, guess what? I got a better way. I hear the problem. I know the issue. But there's a better way. There's a better way. Beloved, we have that better way. And so the better way doesn't say, nah, you're not, your, your issues are imaginary. And you know, you're, come on, pull yourself up by your, no. What we're supposed to be doing is showing that better way. Amen. And beloved, as a church, our voice needs to be heard. Amen. Silence is unacceptable. God calls us to speak. So listen, you need to start doing everything you can possibly try to do. In the Bay Area, we just started the ministry. I I didn't tell them to sit here, but just stand up real quick. Stand up, stand up, stand up. See those shirts? Fight the hate. Fight the hate. This is the ministry. This is the ministry that we just started in the Bay Area. It's probably about eight months old or a little bit more than that. And we are trying to find ways to get our young people involved in taking the three angels' messages to a community in need. We're trying to teach them the importance of understanding the social issues of the day and not responding like everyone else, but responding in the way that Christ would have us respond. Beloved, God is needing his people to step it up. To put the kingdom of heaven over the kingdom of this world. To treat the stranger in a way that we would treat Jesus Christ himself. So, are you ready for this? We're getting ready to close in five seconds, prophetic time. (laughs) Someone worked that out for me yesterday. I don't know if they are here. Okay, look, check this out. Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Yeah, you know where this is going, right? Matthew 25. And I want you to notice with me verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. That word nation is the Greek word ethnos. (laughs) Wow. Wow. All nations shall be gathered before him. And he shall separate them one from another. 
as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger. What? I was a stranger, and you took me in. Now listen, took me in does not mean you took me into your home. It's not what it means. You accepted me. I was a foreigner, and you accepted me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you? When did we see you? We don't remember seeing you. All we saw were strangers. Yeah. (laughs) And then he says to the wicked, depart from me. I was a stranger. You didn't take me in. And you know what they're going to respond? Oh, 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 Lord, wait a minute. You know that if we saw you, we would take you in. You know that because we love you, Lord. Yeah, you did see me. You just didn't know it was me. See, you knew how to play the game. But when you thought I wasn't looking, when you thought it wasn't me, when you, yeah, that was me. That was me. Beloved, listen to me. God is trying to speak to us. He's trying to tell us, don't make the same mistake that Israel made. Don't treat the stranger like Israel treated me. The Bible tells us the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. You know, when Israel was in Egypt, who was the first? Egypt. Who was the last? Israel. You know who became the first fruits? (laughs) Israel. You know what happened to Egypt? They were destroyed. Check this out, guys. Moses was called out of the wilderness. He was called out of the wilderness and he was sent with a message. In Exodus 8, 1, the message was for God's people to serve him. In Exodus 12, his message was come out of Egypt. (laughs) And in Exodus 14, there was a destruction of the wicked. Moses was sent to preach to the last. (laughs) He was sent to preach to the least of these. God has a movement that has come out of the wilderness. And they've been sent 
to minister to the last, the least, the ones who are afraid because they don't know what their future holds. They don't know if they're going to have a job tomorrow. They don't know if they're going to be where they're going to. They don't know if they are safe in this place. They are the foreigners, the strangers, the oppressed. God says, I want you to go to them and tell them, come serve me. Then I want you to tell them, come out of Babylon. And I want you to let them know that their oppressors will no longer oppress them. We have a message for the world. But God says, first, my people, you, you have to see what's in your hearts. And when, when we can demonstrate within the church a nation of, ev- of a people of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people who actually love each other, When we can demonstrate that in, in, in the church, then our message will go forth with great power in the world. So, what's in your heart? What's in your heart? Ask yourself, what's in your heart? You don't know what's in your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. God knows what's in your heart. God knows what's in your heart. Lord, show me. Show me in my heart who I am. Get it out of me, Lord, so that I can have your spirit dwelling in me. Hate is hate is hate. If you hate the oppressor, You are no better than the oppressor. Show me, Lord, what's in my heart. Do I have hatred in my heart? Because only those who love will make it through the last days. My appeal to you tonight is very simple. Change my heart, Lord. Change my heart. But more than change my heart, Lord, change your church. Help us to open our eyes to see our condition. Help us to look around and see what do we look like to the world. And then, Lord, we repent. We thank you for the son of David (laughs) dying on our behalf while we were in our miserable, wretched, naked condition. Now, Lord, fix us. We repent. Fix us. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we need your grace. We need your power. Father, we need your love dwelling in our hearts. And Lord, if we cannot love one another, how can we love you? If we cannot love one another, how can we go into every nation, kindred, tongue, and people? Lord, please forgive us for the picture that we have presented to the world.
Forgive us for our lack of empathy, for our lack of involvement with those who are oppressed. Forgive us for the way we have treated the stranger. And Lord, make us like you. Cleanse us, purify us, and then send us, Lord, with the message you have given us. This we pray in the precious name of Jesus. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.